Lord, we just thank you for this time of worship, God. We thank you for meeting us, God, that your presence, Lord God, was with us even while we were watching on a screen, Lord God, in our homes or in our house churches, Lord God. You were with us. Your spirit was there, Lord God. And as we get ready to go into your word today, God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord God. You would open up our ears to hear what you're saying. And God, that we would leave this moment different from the way we entered it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey guys, good morning. It's John here. I have a question for you. When I say the word confession, what pops into your mind? Do you picture a small room inside a Catholic church? Maybe you picture your favorite episode of Law and Order with Briscoe and Green in an interrogation room with a perp. Today, we're going to be continuing our series, The Way of Jesus, and I have the privilege of speaking on confession. When Justin sent out the list of topics for this sermon series, I saw confession pop right out to me. Now, I think I have the only topic in this entire series that Jesus himself did not practice. Before we go any further, I just want to let you know we have the sermon resource guide available for you. We can't cover everything during this short time, but we've made the sermon resource guide available so that you can continue to study this topic home after service. If you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, or Church Online, we have it available in the video description or in the notes section for Church Online. Today, our text is from Psalm 32. Now, before I get into that, did you know that the Psalms are not in chronological order? In fact, Psalm 51 was written before Psalm 32. Psalm 51 deals with the time that David committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, and it's found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I just want to give you a brief description of what happens in that chapter. David was supposed to be off in battle with his army. But instead, he decided to stay in the palace. One evening, he goes for a walk on the rooftop deck of the palace. He's looking out over the different roofs that surround the palace, and he happens to see this woman, Bathsheba, bathing on another roof. This was common during that time. David, instead of looking away or walking away, decides to watch her bathe. He desires her, and he lets his, his servants know, yo, go get me Bathsheba. They get Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, and she conceives a child. She lets David know that she's pregnant. Instead of David going and confessing his sin before the Lord, he decides to cover it up. He has an idea. I'm going to bring Uriah home, which he does. He gets him drunk over some nice fancy dinner and then sends Uriah home thinking Uriah is going to go and sleep with his wife. Instead, Uriah sleeps at the door of his home and does not go in. His reasoning behind this is that he would not enjoy the pleasures of home while his boys, his brothers, are out fighting in war. David then realizes he's not going to get Uriah to do what he wants him to do, so instead he sends him back out to the battlefield and he tells his general, I want you to go to the hardest part of the fighting and when you get there, pull back but leave Uriah alone. Uriah's there, Uriah's murdered, killed in battle. And then David, trying to look good in front of everybody, marries Bathsheba. David thinks he's, oh, he's got away with this scot-free, but the Lord had a different plan in mind, and he, he lets Nathan the prophet know what David's done. 
Nathan confronts David, and David then realizes that the Lord is giving him an opportunity to repent. He confesses his sin before Nathan and before God, and then he writes Psalm 51. In verse 13, he makes a promise to the Lord, and it says this, I will then teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. See, David goes on to write Psalm 32 with this promise to teach transgressors and so sinners can turn back to God. Now we're gonna get into Psalm 32, verse one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's three words that are used in these first two verses. Sin, transgression, and iniquity. Now, usually we think they're synonymous or interchangeable, but scripture's calling them out here individually. So what do these words mean? Transgression means that we violate trust. You can look at it this way. Let's say you have kids and they're legal to drive. They're 16, 17, 18 years old and they wanna borrow the car. And you go through the rules with them you have to be responsible, wear your seatbelts, no drinking, no reckless driving, no on your cell phone, all of those things. You give them the keys, they go out, and a few hours later, you get that call over, your, over, over the phone. And they say that the kids have been in a car accident and that they were drinking. There, they violated or broke your trust. David's letting us know here that we're blessed because our transgressions or violations of God's trust have been forgiven. What's sin? Sin is a moral failure. The word translated from the Hebrew literally means to miss the goal or to miss the mark. What's the goal? What's the mark? To love God and to love people. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. When we sin against people, we sin against God. This is why our current environment the hate against any people group is sin. And as a church, we should not in any way, shape or form, hate any people group. We're called to love all people because we love God and they're made in his image. Three, iniquity. Iniquity means to be bent or crooked. An example of this would be our lying, cheating, stealing, our ways of getting around truth and goodness. We can even attempt to crookedly confess our sins to God. We do this by attempting to gain favor or escape consequences or punishment. However, as David pointed out in Psalm 51 and then again in Psalm 32, there's only one heart or one spirit that God grants true forgiveness. In Psalm 51, he calls it a broken and a contrite heart. And in Psalm 32, he says a spirit without deceit. That reminds me of a story of my son, Micah. A few years ago, he came to me with his Nintendo Switch and he's like, daddy, daddy, my, my Switch, it doesn't work. I turned it on and it doesn't work. And I said, what happened? Did you drop it? Did you spill something on it? He's like, no, daddy, I didn't. So I turn it on and the screen is all jacked up. Um, I don't know if you've had a switch before or if you've dropped your phone or something, but 
the screen was like split in half. One side was white, one side was black. And then it had all these lines going through it. So I asked him again, you sure you didn't drop it or anything? And he, he very almost angrily tells me, no, I didn't drop it. I didn't do anything to it. I just turned it on. So I said, okay. Now I happen to remember the day before he was playing upstairs and he was playing Smash Brothers, if I'm not mistaken. And he couldn't beat one of the bosses in Smash Brothers. And he was getting really frustrated. Frustrated to the point where he was talking to the device, doing that, oh, this is so hard. They make it so impossible. And then it got to the point of that growl that happens for all you gamers when you're playing and you're frustrated. The, so I asked him, hey, Michael, why don't you take a break from playing the game? Go to your room, play something else for a little while. Uh, and then you could try later to play the game. And he said, no, daddy, I want to go to Gaga's house, which is his grandmother that's downstairs. So I said, sure, go to Gaga's house. He takes his switch downstairs. He goes downstairs. He comes up that evening. And instead of in typical Micah fashion coming in, um, being loud and, and playful and everything, he comes in, he goes straight to his room, puts his switch away, changes to his PJs, sits next to us, puts on the iPad and kind of quietly sits there. And I was reminded of it at this moment. So I went to him and I said, hey, Micah, I said, um, I have insurance on the switch and I can get it fixed or replaced, but I really need to know what happened with it. Again, he tells me nothing happened. He doesn't know what happened. It just turned on and it was that way. I gave him a break and then I decided to press it one more time. And I went to him and I let him know, hey, buddy, I'm, I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry at you. Don't worry. You're not going to get in trouble or anything like that. I just really want to know, did something happen with the switch? Because if I don't tell them the truth, they're not going to replace it. And we're not going to be able to get a new switch. It's really expensive. And that's when it happened. If you have a little one, you know, the, the eyes start welling up with tears and he starts getting really emotional at that moment. He starts crying and I'm like, you're okay. And then all of a sudden the <laughs> that kids go into. And after he comes down for a few seconds, he tells me that he was really frustrated playing downstairs. And while he was frustrated, either he kind of like did like that with the switch or he hit it. And from there, it stopped working. Now, honestly, I did not need Micah to tell me that story so I can get the switch replaced or fixed. The insurance, they don't care about that stuff. What I needed was for Micah to be honest and open with me, to confess what he did with that switch because I needed it for Micah's sake, not for my sake. I needed him to know that he can trust me to take care of him. He can trust me to love him. He can trust me to make sure that nothing's gonna happen to him. I was not gonna hit him because he broke a switch. We all make mistakes. But I wanted him to know I was, it was safe to tell me everything, not to hide anything from me. I go on to say that because in verse three, David lets us know what happens when we remain silent. What happened with his cover-up of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah? He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When we walk around with unconfessed sin, unchecked sin in our life, it separates us from our Father. It separates us from Jesus. It destroys relationships, both our spiritual and physical relationships. When we try to hide our sin, it changes us. We become the worst versions of ourselves. Angry, short, bitter, 
all of these things start to happen in our heart. If you don't believe me, look at King David. He was called the man after God's own heart. But after he sinned with Bathsheba committing adultery, he went on to be a murderer and he covered it up as well. When I've had sin in my life that's been unconfessed, I've become shady, angry, and fake. To be real with you, me and Jess have been married for 17 years and we've been together dating and married for 23 years. I know that's a long time. I don't look that old. I know. Thank you. Um, but early on in our marriage, I struggled with sexual sin. And when I began to struggle with it, I was very ashamed of myself. I was very, I felt very guilty. And instead of confessing it and finding someone to confess it to or bringing it to the Lord, I tried covering it up. I remember all the times that I would go to church and I would do the churchy thing. I would get in there and I knew when to lift my hands. I knew when to do the things that made me look spiritual. I knew how to pray for people without being full of the Holy Spirit. I knew all these things to do and to look the part. But inside, I was dying. I was in pain. I was hurting. And more and more I fell into sexual sin, the more and more I tried to cover it up with things and, 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 and situations. But what happened was, those things started to leak out into my everyday life. I became very angry and mean with Jess, with family and friends. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to be around the things of God because every time I was around, I felt guilty and ashamed. I felt dirty and I felt like everybody knew that I was dirty and all I wanted to do was cover myself up. I led in that way. I went to church in that way. I was married in that way. I trespass against Jess's trust in me, against my leader's trust in me, against my pastors and my friends' trust in me. All these things I did and tried to cover it up. And David, he says that his bones wasted away and he was groaning all day long. When you live a double life, when you live in silence and you're hiding your sin, you literally feel like you're wasting away. I felt in that time like I was the weakest version of myself. Though outside people thought I was great, inside I was dying. When I would get home and get alone, sometimes in the shower, I just begin to cry because I didn't, I, there was no connection with God. There was no energy, no, nothing going on in, in me to make me feel alive. It's a slow, painful death. I look at it this way. One time I had a sinus infection and Jess was away at a choir trip and I was by myself in the apartment. I had nobody to help me with anything. And it was one of those really big, bad sinus infections where you have that super 103 fever. You have no energy in your body. I was by myself. I was hungry at times. I needed to walk to the bathroom. I needed to shower, all of these things. And I had no energy to get up. And I was walking around and I was, there was times where I was begging God, send somebody to the house just to help me to get something to eat. That's how bad that it was. That's the illustration. That's the way I picture David talking about his life at this moment in time. That's the way I experienced my life with unconfessed sin. But the beauty behind it in verse four 
is that God does not allow us to walk around with unconfessed sin. He loves us so much, David described it as his hand was heavy on him. And he felt like the heat of summer. I don't know if you've been to Disney in the middle of summer. We do a family vacation every year. And July and August, it's either July or August where we go to Disney. And if you've ever been there in July and August, it's like, 90 degrees, and then like a thousand percent humidity. And you're waiting online for an hour or two hours for a ride that lasts about a minute and a half at most. And many times you're waiting online in the heat. There's no shade. There's no, there's no covering. They have these like whack little fans with a, 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 like a, a, a mist blower at you. It doesn't do anything for you. You're waiting for hours in the heat of the sun. You get inside to ride the ride and you can't even enjoy the ride because you're so tired from the sun just beating on you for those two hours. That's what David described. That's the the, the heat of the summer. That's the exhaustion that he felt. That's that heavy hand of God on him. And God does this because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us to be separated from him. He wants us to confess our sins to him. He wants us to confess our trespass, our iniquity to him. He wants to restore us. He desires to restore us. And David lets us know he goes from the pain of silence to the joy of forgiveness in verse five. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, after David was confronted by Nathan, he stopped hiding and he openly confessed to God. When I was finally confronted by my friend about my sexual sin, it's someone that I respected and that I trusted. And it's, it's really crazy because this man that I, that, that I confessed it to, I only knew him for a short time. But in that short time, I began to respect and trust this man. And he happened to live in California and he was coming into New York for an event and I had to go pick him up at Newark Airport. And we're driving back from Newark Airport during rush hour back into the city, waiting to get into the Lincoln Tunnel. We were in bumper-to-bumper traffic, but not regular bumper-to-bumper where you move the five inches or something. There were, we were just in standstill traffic at this point, and we were waiting for over an hour and a half. And while we're talking in the car, we're talking about life and all these things, and there was this Holy Spirit moment, and there was nothing that I said that triggered it. It was my friend, and he says, John, you're struggling with this, 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 and this. And I knew that it was God and I began to cry and I would told him, yeah, all of these things are true. And I broke down and and I shared everything that I was going through, the weight of that unconfessed sin in my life. And I thought that I was going to receive a finger on my face. I'm disappointed in you. I can't believe you've done this. But instead, what I received was love, forgiveness, acceptance, mercy, He prayed with me and he gave me godly counsel. And he was like, yo, you need to have a conversation with your wife. Let her know what's going on. And I was like, okay, I will. He restored my soul at that moment, that friend, because he cared that much about me. The peace that comes 
when we confess our sin. There's a freedom because now we know that God knows what we've done, even though he already knew what we did. We've said it out of our mouths, but also we said it, I said it in front of somebody, somebody that I trusted, that I respected. David said it in front of Nathan, the prophet. He confessed his sin. I wanna share with you that there's something to communal confession or a community of confession. There's this quote that I like by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's from this book, Life Together, that I'm reading. And it's all about community. And this is what Bonhoeffer says. Why is it that it's often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He's a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is sinful as we are. He knows his own experience, the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to a holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and granting ourselves absolution. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God? God gives us his certainty through our brother. Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sin in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. To sum it up, what Bonhoeffer is saying is there's something in communal confession because no longer are you just confessing your sin to God and walking around with this secret that you've sinned. You don't share it with anybody. You don't talk to anybody about it. So you've confessed it and you're good now, but you still carry it around with you. It's not like it disappears. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that we should practice James 5.16. In James 5.16, he tells us, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer, of a, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. James 5.16 lets us know there's, there's healing that comes when we confess our sins to our brother or to our sister. So I want to encourage you today, find someone in this Christian community that is Zion. Find a brother or a sister that you trust, and it has to be a two-way street. You have to confess your sins to them, and they have to confess their sins to you. I don't want everybody going to run to find Justin and confess your sins to Justin. He has enough to worry about. Find someone in your circle, whether it's in your house church community or in a small group community that you have. Maybe it's a Bible study that you're doing with one another. Find some people that you trust, two or three people that you trust to share your sins with. People that love your soul, that care about you. Because they'll check you when you're off. But when you go and confess your sins, they're there to stand, to bear witness, to make sure that you're not just confessing your sin, like I said earlier, just to get out of a punishment. But you're actually repenting because you understand the weight of what you've done and the fact that you have separation now with God. I want to encourage you, find someone today. 
After service, find somebody. Look out for those people that you can share your sin with. With this, David lets us know about the beauty that comes from confession. It's something that frees and liberates us. In 1 John 1, 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John knew the character of God because he read Psalm 32. God's revealed to us as one who forgives, one who blesses, and responds to repentance. We see this in verse 1. Blessedness is equal to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift. It's not something that we earn. Something I've learned walking these last 22 years as a Christian is that you can't do any work to earn the forgiveness that you receive from Christ. It's just like salvation. It's just like grace. All of these things are gifts from God. When you try to walk around sinless, when you try to walk around perfect, you're doing everything in your own power. You're trying to earn God's love, forgiveness, acceptance. But these are things that we can't earn. We just have to receive it. Today, receive the gift of forgiveness. Don't try to earn it. As we continue to get back into the text, verse six and seven tells us, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Sin, iniquity, trespass, transgression, they all try to overwhelm and consume us. They attempt to hide Christ and his forgiveness from us. There's a movie that I love from 1994. Yes, 1994, a century ago. I was alive then. It's called The River Wild. And the, the, the crux of the movie is that there's these robbers, um, I think they're bank robbers or something like that, and there's a family on a, um, a, a river cruise, and the mom happens to be like this expert river guide or something like that, and she knows this river at like the back of her hand. And they take over this family's river adventure, and they're trying to get away from the authorities, and the entire time, um, the river is trying to it's wild. So it's trying to get into the boat, trying to sink the boat, all of these things, almost like it has a mind of its own. And throughout the movie, you see that this mom is like giving techniques about you got to do this and you got to do that. And this is the way you go through the rapids and all of this stuff. She's letting them know how to navigate through that river that's trying, that, that should, you shouldn't be on, but she knows how to ride it. When we hide our sin from God. When we walk around with unconfessed sin, what happens to us is we're going around in a boat with no guide. There's no one to let us know how to go through the rapids of life, how to go through this and that, and the boat ends up sinking. But when we have Christ, when we're openly confessing, when we're openly walking in this walk with God where we're not hiding our sin, but we're letting God know what's going on in our life, we have that guide with us in the boat. 
He becomes our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. That's what the scripture says here. Not we do these things. He does it for us. God is our hiding place. We have to take advantage of that. We have to recognize and live in that. Verses 8 through 11, David switches things up and he speaks in the prophetic voice of God. And he says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. <clears throat> We're called to live a disciplined life. Like we've been studying for the, or been in this series for the last couple of weeks, there are a number of disciplines that we talked about. We talked about the study of scripture, fasting, silence and solitude, worship, community, and now confession. God has given us godly counsel, whether it's teachers of the word, pastors, his word, his Holy Spirit. They keep instructing us how to live a disciplined life. Here at Zion, we're very intentional about, how, about lining our lives up with scripture. We engage in Bible studies, these sermon series, books that we post online. We continually provide opportunities for uh, community where we both grow spiritually and socially with one another. See, the person who rejects discipline, the person who rejects a disciplined life, they're like that untamed horse or mule. The bit and the brittle that he's talking about is the thing that goes in the horse's mouth, right? And then you have these, these stirrups that are pulled back, right? And you're riding the horse. And when you pull them, you tell the horse which way to go. So if you pull with your right hand, the horse knows to go that way. If you pull with your left hand, the horse knows to go that way. When our life is undisciplined, we don't have that. Our life is a wreck. The horse, the mule, they go whichever way they want. They don't obey. They don't listen. They won't come near you. They want to go eat. They want to go drink. They want to go run free. That's what happens with our lives. We start running free and we shipwreck our lives. We destroy it. It's full of sorrow. It's full of pain. There's no joy. But a disciplined life, one that is walking in confession, one that is open with the Lord. There's no secrets. There's no hiding. That's a life that's got the bit and brittle. It's surrounded by love. There's joy. There's an upright heart. There's this peace that comes over us, this freedom that we live in because we're found in God. As I get ready to close today, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've been reading along in your Bible or on, your, uh, on a Bible app on your phone, there's this word that appears uh, next to verses two and three and then uh, verse five and then six and seven. The word is Selah. And scholars actually don't know what this word means, but one of the few agreed upon meanings is that there's a pause. It means to pause, but not just a pause like, a comma or a period in a sentence, but it's a pregnant pause or a pause of contemplation. 
As we close, I want to invite you to take a Selah moment right now. We're being invited to receive God's forgiveness today, his healing in the beauty of confession. See, sometimes we see God in a warped way. We see him in a way that when we bring him our sin, when we bring him our transgression, when we bring him our iniquity, he's going to throw it in our face. He's going to shame us. He's going to expose us that we're not going to be accepted. But today, Psalm 32, we read, that's not the God that we serve. If anything, there's no shame. There's no exposure. God never changes David from a man after his own heart to a murderer or adulterer. He always called him a man after his own heart. He even identified Jesus as the son of David. He loved David, and he loves you and me. This psalm closed, letting us know that there's joy in confession. There's joy. There's love that surrounds us when we go to God, when we're honest and truthful with him. I want to encourage you today. If you're in your house church, maybe in person or online, if you're with a group of people right now, take some time, find some people in that group, practice confession with them, pray with one another. Let God know what's going on in your life. It's not like he doesn't know, but you, like Micah, need to be open with God and honest with all that you've done wrong and allow God to love you, heal you, and make things right. He wants to restore, he wants to renew, and he wants a right relationship with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had, Lord God, in your word. And God, I pray that wherever words have failed me, Lord God, that your spirit would go and speak to our hearts, Jesus. I pray that we would be open and we wouldn't hide from you any longer, God. But God, when we mess up, when we sin, when we transgress, Lord God, when we have iniquity in our lives, Lord God, that we would truly be open and honest with you, that we would confess, Lord God, that you wouldn't have to lay your hand heavy on our lives, Lord God, but God, that we would have that open door with you, Lord God, letting you know that we've messed up once again, God, and that we would freely accept your gift of forgiveness, that you would free us, that you would bring peace in our life and joy in our life, that we would be renewed in you, Jesus. Help us to find people that we can share um, our sins with, Lord God, that we don't walk alone, that we don't carry this burden alone, Lord God. But God, we're called to live in community with one another, God. So help us to do this, Jesus. We thank you today that you love us and that you chase after us, God. Help us to be honest and open with you. In your precious name, amen.